You may be seated, kids. You are dismissed. Bye, Audrey. Bye, girls. I'm really popular today. It's, <laughs> it's truly, truly good to be able to come and worship, right? It really is a privilege. How many of you know it's a privilege to be able to worship? How many of you actually view it as a privilege to be able to gather together and actually sing truths about God back to each other and speak them to each other and back to God. That's actually a privilege. It's something that it's easy to take for granted, but it truly is something we should be thankful for, that we should take great joy in. And so when I ask you if you see privilege or if you see worship as a privilege, let me ask you, how do you think you're doing with stewarding that privilege? So I want you to think about that. Have you ever thought about worship as something to actually steward? I mean, it's something that we do, right? I think sometimes it's something that we uh, respond. It's a way in which we respond, right? So we really can't answer the question, do we steward worship well, until we actually define it. What is worship? Now, typically, for worship would be the way we talk about corporate worship, right, today. Hey, we're here to worship. We're here to, to sing songs, right? We just said it, to sing truth about God and to speak truth about God. And, and hopefully the Holy Spirit will take those truths and move upon our hearts and impress upon our hearts the things that either aren't true or encourage the things that are, right? That's one huge part of worship. That's the way we normally think about worship. All right, I'm here to worship. We'll say things like, I, I love worshiping God. We had a good day of worship today. Or when we're looking for a church, I need a church that knows how to worship. We say phrases, we say things like that. My question is, um, what is, what is worship? So I'm gonna get, I'll tell you a story. There's a, uh, uh, someone I've been able to get some time with. He's the president of a seminary out in California. And he tells this story that just really has stuck with me. I pr probably heard it three or four years ago. And it's stuck with me ever since. He, he talked about going to go visit a church that vibrant church, lots of good things happening there. And he had, he had wanted to, to check them out. He used to pastor a church in Berkeley years ago. And so he was, he was back there to kind of check out what was going on. And so he, he goes to visit and it was an incredible time, right? He said that the, he, was, he was completely enamored with the worship leader and how the worship leader was able to engage uh, with the congregation and, and to get the congregation to engage with the truth of, of God and who God was and who God is. And he just said it was just incredible. He said, and then the worship leader prayed and then he stepped down. And he, and, and he just kind of stood there with the rest of the folks that were singing. And as they were singing, he began to lift his hands and he began to, to sing out to God, which is completely great. And then in the midst of his moving and in the midst of his worshiping, quote unquote, he began to step on people around him. He began to bump into people around him. He began to knock a few people over. No one kind of said anything. If you grew up in maybe some of the churches I grew up in, you would say, look, that's just the spirit moving. If you don't get it, that's not for you, right? You would say things like that. <clears throat> and as we laugh, you, you do realize that what ends up happening and what this person ended up doing, he was praising God while being oblivious to his neighbor. You see, the way that you worship can cause you to lose your neighbor, and then you call it worship. And we actually say that, we're, that we, we, we worship that way because we feel so close to God. And, and I feel this. And so you can't restrict what I'm feeling. You can't restrict what I'm being moved to do, even if it causes me to step on my neighbor. And then we call that worship. This is actually the way we function as a church so often. It's, it's 
important to be passionate about God, but for all of our passion, worship often centers around us. Worship often centers around us. The way that we choose to worship, we worship in a way that makes us feel like that we are at peace with God. This is what we sing and this is what we enjoy. And it's like, why do I do this? I feel close. I feel like I'm at peace with him. I feel like I'm close to him. I feel like I have a special relationship. And so don't get in the way of how I worship because this is about me and God. And God says, if that is your view of worship, you are not at peace with me. You might be at peace with yourself, congratulations, but you're not at peace with me. Because there's a piece of worship that should actually take you outside of yourself. There's a piece of worship that, that should actually orient you completely outside of yourself. So even in your personal, individual worship, it should draw you out of yourself. You should never use worship as a way of secretly worshiping yourself. We should never use worship in a way to make ourselves feel so much better about what we're doing. I'm doing this because I feel close to God. Well, what about other people? If they get close to him, they'll get it too. That's actually not worship. And we're going to see this in our text. What we're going to see is the danger of worshiping God in such a way that you lose track of your neighbor. And by losing track of your neighbor, you are either prone to perpetrating injustice against your neighbor, being complicit in it, or being completely apathetic. So when we read this text, I want you to be thinking about that. I want you to think about how you view worship, how you've always thought about worship, maybe your critiques of worship when you've been in other places. It's easy. I've done it because the way that, that the kind of schema that I use to define worship is my own experiences. And so I can go to a church. You realize that you should never be able to go to any church service and say that church worships well. There's no way for you to know that on a Sunday morning. We're going to see that in this passage. There's no way to know if a church truly worships well. If you think that worship is relegated to the performance on Sunday, you are not worshiping. I am not worshiping. If I think that the way that I evaluate a church is by, quote unquote, the worship on Sunday, I'm not there for worship. I'm there to be entertained. I'm not there for worship. I'm just there for a concert. I'm not there for God's heart. I'm really there for my own. So as we read this passage, I want you to, to really keep that in mind. What is worship, truly? How do I view worship uh, for myself and for my community? So we're going to read Isaiah uh, chapter 58. Isaiah is an incredible book. Most people or some people would refer to this almost as third Isaiah because Isaiah is such a massive book and there are several sections, three main sections of Isaiah. This actually gives us a time, if you, if you remember, uh, when the children of Israel were, were in captivity, Babylonian captivity, uh, there were times when they were in chain and then there were times when they were able to go back and they were uh, freed and they were released to now begin to worship, quote unquote, the way they were meant to. This is where we find ourselves. So you've got these folks who now have freedom again, and they can worship the way that they were meant to worship. They, they can actually bear an image of the heart of God in community the way that they were called to. You do realize that every step of the way, God's people, whether in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, they're commissioned to not just live for themselves. They're actually commissioned to live for those in community. That's always been the case. So now here they are. They, Isaiah 58, they're here. They're worshiping, quote, unquote. They're doing a lot of the things that we're going to see here. And let's, let's let that kind of set as the background as we read Isaiah 58, starting at verse 1. Cry aloud, do not hold back. 
Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgressions, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily, delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall rise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's only 14 verses, but there's a lot in there, isn't it? Yeah. This, is, this is one that I was telling some people earlier. This is one, as I studied this week, this, this really, I mean, each, each, each week, there are times when I'm in the, the, the scriptures during the week just prepping and really allowing God to do work on my own heart before I could ever proclaim anything here. And this one was just really working me over because all of us have an idea about what worship looks like. All of us have an idea of like what we expect from worship. And usually, myself included, I don't know that I've ever heard anyone define worship starting with the way God does here. I just never, I've never really heard. Even if people might believe it and they may even practice it, I rarely hear it communicated that way. Hey, this is what worship looks like for, for, for us. This is what worship looks like uh, for church. This is what worship looks like for our family. It's normally extremely individual. And that aspect is vitally important. But usually that's where I hand it, hear it in. And then everything else is just added on to it. I've got my individual stuff. And then this other stuff I add on. It's kind of a nice tangent. 
Uh, but I rarely hear it kind of saying, hey, the core, the focus of my worship is here. And so the first thing I, I think is, is interesting is the very first verse where Isaiah begins. The way that God tells Isaiah to begin, he says, cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. You do realize that the, the job of the prophet is to actually communicate God's heart back to the people. They represent God to the people. The job of the priest was to represent the people to God. The job of the prophet is simply to say, this is what God says, either A, well done, or B, you're not there. That's it. That's the job of the prophet. Today, it's very difficult to speak with any degree of, of, of a prophetic voice in church circles because if you, if you feel badly about something someone says to you from the pulpit, that equates to that must not have been from God. Because if it was from God, I would feel really good right now. I don't go to church to feel bad. I, I go to church to feel better. But I walked away not feeling so good. It's actually a function of the grace of God. If you can walk away feeling like I realize there's something that God needs to continue working on me for because ultimately if he's changing me into his image, I would hate to feel like he's done working on me. I would hate to feel like I've, I've arrived because I, I know all the mess that I still have. And so here God starts out with, listen, I need you to do my job. I need you to do the job, prophet Isaiah. Your job is to go and proclaim boldly my truth. And I need you to proclaim my truth to my people who think that they have the truth, who think that they're practicing it properly. And yet, and yet they're not. And then you get to verses two through four, which, which is interesting. Keep in mind, these are folks who think that they are doing well, right? They're doing, they're doing all the things that you and I would say is a part of our personal worship. They're doing all the things that you would say that is vitally important to your own personal holiness. And they are. They're, they're fasting, which is a huge part of the outward worship, this huge part of d d showing I'm relying on God for everything. I'm not eating, I'm not, I'm not, even though my body decides physical sustenance, I'm going to spiritually only rely on him to remind me how necessary he is. Yeah. That's awesome. Great. So they would do this, this outward expression, and they're sacrificing, and sac bringing sacrifices, and, and doing all of these outward things that you would call, you would call true worship. And yet verses two through four is basically this, and this is the job of the prophet, and this is the job of the pastor today for, for myself and all of us. It's the job, of, really what the gospel does is it exposes our own hypocrisy. The worst thing, we say it all the time, the worst thing we can do is to stroll through life believing our own press clippings and not realizing just how off we still are in some areas. The gospel, you realize that we say this often, when you read the scriptures, actually the scriptures are reading you. You're not just seeking out after the Spirit. The Spirit is actually seeking you out and reading you and telling you about you. You never have to go to God and tell him, I'm this God, I'm that God, I'm for you. You realize we don't really have to do that because God knows just how much of a liar we really are. He knows just how often, how imperfect our hearts really are. So ultimately what we're crying out is, you know my heart, you know how broken it still is, and I need more of you. You know the areas in my life where I am not really living out a, a life of worship. I need more of you. And so now, here, God, uh, what, what he says is, is so interesting. He says, uh, first, go out, proclaim to the people their transgression and their sin. This, you realize being a prophet in the Old Testament has to be one of the most difficult things at times. 
to bring bad news often. You have to bring bad news often. You have to constantly just say, hey, by the way, God's mad at you. (laughs) By the way, you're still not quite there. By the way, you're still being a hypocrite. And and finally, when when he gets to this point, he said, yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness. So basically, he's saying, Isaiah, I need you to go. Tell them about that transgression. But you need to understand, they're probably going to have a hard time hearing it because they fancy themselves as really holy people. They're going to point to their spiritual resume when you tell them this. They're going to say, no, you don't understand, Isaiah, mouthpiece of God. You don't understand, uh, 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 you don't get it. You can't possibly be right because look at all the things we're doing. We're doing the outward stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm worshiping. So I don't know what God you're listening to, but, but the God that I've created for myself tells me I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> and so he, you see the nature of the hypocrisy. He says, yet they seek me daily. They delight to know my ways as if they were a, notion that, a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. And then he quotes some things that they say. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? It's interesting because that's, you ever, I mean, I know for me, there are times where I've kind of created my own form of worship that, that looks good enough and then things don't seem to work out. And I'm going, what did I do wrong? Why is God not listening to me? How, how does he not know? And really when, I, when I'm saying that, it's really, did he miss something? Did he, did he not realize just how put together I really am? to do to remind him that I'm actually that I'm actually all that? What do I have to do to convince God that I really have my stuff together? This is what they're doing. They're, we fasted, and God doesn't see it. We've been really humble, and somehow he, he, doesn't, he doesn't see it. So, so maybe, isn't it interesting how we may not say it, but the way that we function and we live, we act as if something's wrong with God. It's never us. There's always something wrong with everything else. Well, and I've seen this happen even when we have to bring out points in the scriptures. There are scriptures that will actually point to the way that you think about something is actually off. And you go, well, there's got to be something wrong with that scripture. It can't be anything wrong with the way I'm thinking because this is really the only court of arbitration that matters is the way I think. This, this idea that God might not really be for this. No, I can't. I can't rock with that because that doesn't jive well with what I've created as worshipful for me. And so now Isaiah's got to go and say this to them. And he says, how does he, not, how does he not see that? How does God not see that? And then God says, behold, in the day of your fast, here's the key, you seek your own pleasure. You oppress your workers. One of the things that, that gets me with this passage is what we started with. We often worship our way. Right? It's, I've got my way. Everybody's got their way of worshiping. Everybody has their way of connecting to God, and they do to an, to, a, to an extent. But one of the things you get from this chapter is that you actually don't have the luxury of creating the way you want to worship all the way. Like, you, you have the choice. If anything, it's the explanation that we've given in the past about the message of God. If you remember how we broke down the difference between the message and the massage, right? The message of God, that doesn't change. Who God is, that doesn't change. What he requires of us, that doesn't change. So so you never change the message. Now, the way it gets in, the way we manifest it, the way we communicate it, that's the massage. 
how we massage the truth into our life. The problem is we often confuse or conflate the massage for the message. The way that I do it is that's the way. Even if what I'm saying is actually off, I don't care about that. As long as I continue doing what I'm doing, I fall in love with the method. I'm not really in love with the message. I just love the way I'm doing it. It it becomes cultural. A lot of times church is just cultural. I'm not even just being completely honest. Church is more often cultural than it is spiritual for, for a lot of us. I'm convinced that for us, what church is, is a pure, habitual, cultural exercise. It's really not a true thing of spiritually exfoliating ourselves and being exposed to the actual God of the universe. That's not what it is. It's just a cultural exercise. All right, Sunday's here. This is the way I love to sing. This is the way I love to raise my hands or not. This is whether I come from high church or I don't want to say low church, but high church and other church. Whether it's expressive, whether it's not, we start judging it. Oh, they're too expressive. That's not what I'm using. That's the massage. Or they're not expressive enough. That's the massage. We we fall in love with the massage, and no one knows how to communicate the message any longer. We've made it an idol. They made it an idol. They don't know what worship is. So so, so we, we fall into this pattern so often, and the biggest thing is this. We don't have the right to dictate to God what worship should look like. We don't have the right to actually tell him, I know what you want, but this is what works for me. You know what you don't have the right to say to God? Well, that's your truth. As if God's truth is subjective. Objective truth doesn't change. You don't have the luxury of picking out, I now will exalt my subjective truth above your objective truth, O creator. You don't have that right. But they thought they did. That's the reason why they continued to move forward. They were living in this way. And so as you, as you move forward, you see this. God is basically saying, uh, since I'm the object of your worship, I get to be the designer of your worship. You see, if you're worshiping me, then I'm the one that dictates to you, here's what it looks like then for you to reflect my heart individually and in community. This is what the job of, the, of, of God's people in the Old Testament and God's people, the church in the New Testament has always been. And he says, in your fast, you seek your own pleasure and you oppress all your workers. Now, we don't know exactly what was going on here. Scholars don't know exactly what the situation was. But what we can tell is this. For whatever reason, when the Sabbath day would come and people would engage in there, they would have their free time of worship. They found that as a time to uh, do things for themselves. But you know who didn't get the free time to worship? Their, Their employees. So basically, the employers are the people who had the privilege, the people who had the ability to, 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 uh, to kind of take off and, and relax and, and enjoy a time of rest. They, were, they weren't working, and their workers were still there. The, the ones with privilege were taking the day devoted to worship God as a day to exploit the ones who didn't have privilege. That's what we know. Right? We know for a fact the people who didn't have the privilege to be able to take off to be able to rest, they were being exploited. So ultimately, these folks were saying, I want to exploit the people who don't have privilege so that I can enlarge my own. That's, that's, what they, that's what they were doing. Now, a little bit later, we'll look at ways in which we as the church are not all that different. I, I hope I don't have to bring tons of examples up. We'll talk about a couple, but 
hopefully you can think through times throughout our history, just in this country, where the, the church used its own privilege to just enlarge while not caring at all about those who didn't have it. Because that's, sadly, that's kind of been the calling card of the church. You realize that uh, while there are always exceptions, we can bring up different exceptions to the rule. By and large, anytime there are any people groups that are not protected or actually need to be advocated for, so often the church is the last to speak up, is the last to step up. And then oftentimes the church gets so fragile in her feelings that, that, they, that what they end up doing, what we end up doing is we get so angry that there's other people who are doing what ought to have been done so then we start finding ways to criticize. Well, they're not doing it the way we would do it. Well, they don't really have the right name the way that they're doing that. I don't know that I agree with that. Well, you know what? They don't really have their theology the way that we do, so we're just going to sit over here and wait for them to fail, and then we'll come up with our own version. This was where Israel was, and here's the deal. Y'all, this, is, this, this couldn't be more simple. The, the, the purpose of the gospel, one of the many purposes of the gospel is to expose your shallow worship. Wow. One of the biggest points of what the, Holy, what the Holy Spirit does, hopefully for all of us, is to expose our plastic, fake, and phony worship. And it should feel uncomfortable. It should, right? If there's something that's not right, it should feel uncomfortable. That's one of the reasons now that, obviously, we won't get into this here, but now that we, we see the word protest has been coming up a ton, and regardless of how you feel about protests, the one thing you can't say is, uh, I just don't know if I feel good about the way that this certain thing happens. You realize the purpose of a protest is to make you uncomfortable. Yes. Period. Has nothing to, this has nothing to do with whether you agree with it or not, but the purpose of a protest is to make you uncomfortable enough to step outside of yourself so that you can go, okay, what am I missing here? Or, or what do I need to hear? Or why are these people wrong or right or what have you? But, but the purpose of that is to make you uncomfortable. You realize that ultimately conviction is a function of the Holy Spirit protesting something that you hold to. If you don't like protest, don't tell me you like conviction. Don't tell me you like re repentance. Because ultimately that's what protest is. And so now what's happening is God is simply saying, Here's the protest. You need to know what to do with it. And so finally, he, he goes in and he says, you, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Somehow this day didn't lead to worshipful engaging with each other. It, led, it didn't lead to humble worship. It led to fighting. You realize that any act of individual worship that's disconnected from a heart of communal worship will lead to a breakdown in community. Any, any of your worship acts that you love doing, I don't care what it is, whether it's your, your quiet time, scripture memory, prayer time, all those wonderful disciplines that we all need. So please hear that. We vitally need that. But if that does not move you into communal worship, you might have a fake worship. Because you're missing a huge part of God's heart. He's basically saying, if you really are doing all these things, and you're not doing it in an echo chamber, but you're doing it where I, where I have you, and you're doing it in community, it should move you out into community. Here's the other thing. When they say things like, why doesn't God hear us? Why doesn't God see us? We can do this often. You have to be very careful. You are not to worship God to be seen by him. We worship God so that he can be seen by others. 
So we live a life of worship to make his name known. We don't live a life of worship to make our name known. But that actually is kind of how we function and kind of how we, we teach. Even when we're raising kids, we'll do that. We'll do that just with, um, I mean, we'll, we'll kind of, we'll use, we'll use, uh, what's the best way to put it? We'll oftentimes use a, a self-esteem or we'll use um, a way of worshiping self or taking pride in oneself. We'll use that as an incentive for a kid. So, and we'll do that with ourselves sometimes. Hey, listen, don't do this. Why? Because you're better than that. That sounds good. We'll say that about ourselves. I don't want to do that. I don't want to break that rule. Why? Because I'm better than that. Or I don't want to do that. Why? Because my mom and dad didn't raise me that way. All, all that might be true, but you know what that's still devoid of? It's not, I don't want to do that. Why? Because that's not worshipful to the one that made me. Yeah. That, that's not actually the way, that, what I was actually designed for. That's not actually what it means to worship the God who's rescued me. And then God, God basically tells them this, and this is why he's really hitting them hard. God is telling them, your worship is simply just modifying your behavior. You're basically just making, you're, you're molding like fine plastic. You're just molding things to say, oh, this is what a worshiper should look like. I'll just go do that. Oh, this is what worshiping should sound like. I'll just sing like that. A worshiper have memorized, so I'll just memorize that. And then we wonder why that in and of itself does not seem to attract those who don't know God. So ultimately, we attract other people from other circles that know God. Hey, come even in local churches. Hey, come on over here now. But what is it, right? Jesus said that, that people would know us. How? By our fruit. He said he would know us also by what? Our love for whom? For one another. That's actually the primary way that people know. They don't know us based on how much scripture you've memorized that you can quote back out to them. You better know it. They, they don't know us because of, man, I saw that person praying in their room for two hours. Sign me up. <laughs> they actually know because, man, I'm seeing those people stewarding their privilege in a way that shows that there's something different over there about them because the way that they love people, the way that they care for people. And then God says in verse 5, he moves out of their hypocrisy and he starts to, to confront them and he says, is this the fast that I choose? And he's very sarcastic here. I love it when people say like, sarcasm is my spiritual gift. It's definitely God's. <laughs> God is incredibly sarcastic here. He's saying, is this the fast that I choose? And then everything he says are things that aren't bad. A day for a person to humble himself, bow their head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth and ashes was something you did for mourning purposes. If you were mourning your sin, which we should all be doing, then you would, if it was a great sin, you would, you would be mourning and you would show your mourning publicly and you would uh, lay down sackcloth and ashes and throw the ashes around over your body to show I'm broken. I'm waiting for Messiah to come rescue me. I want to be forgiven by, by Jehovah, by Yahweh. This is what it meant. So, so these things aren't bad in and of themselves, right? But God is saying, is this the fast that I choose? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? And they're all standing there going, uh, yeah, yeah, that's pretty much the deal. That's what we've always understood fast to be. And then God says, no, is not this the fast that I choose? So he's already brought up humbling yourself, mourning, questioning. Is that it? You think that's acceptable? Just that by itself? For many of us, the answer is yes. 
For many of us, the answer is yes. Yes, I do, what I, I, I do those things. My private spiritual life, it's, it's, it's good. I, I've, got my, I've got my stuff together. My, 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 my character is unassailable. You, you can't indict me for anything like big or major. I'm, I'm, I'm saying the right things. I'm not looking at the wrong things. I'm, I'm making sure my heart is pure from some of the individual sin issues that, that I could struggle with. I'm doing all of that fine. And God says, is not this the fast that I choose, though? To loose the bonds of wickedness. There's the sin issue, for sure. To undo the straps of the yoke. To let the oppressed go free. And to break every yoke. Whoa. I, just, just really just listen to those words for a minute. That's, that, takes, that, moves the, that, that moves the goal line a little bit because it says more than just my individual life. This is where, I, ta- I said this last week, this is where the, my critique of uh, d- discipleship, it, it, it goes so uh, anemic at this point because discipleship so rarely, or so, so often pushes us into all of the individual stuff and rarely moves you to this communal societal piece. And part of that, we don't have time here, hopefully we'll get into it eventually, part of that is the way that the church has become overly politicized. Part of that, a large part of that, and you probably don't, there are things that we think right now that we think are independent thoughts. We don't realize that they have been completely put together decades ago in order to marry church with a certain way of thinking about things. We don't even know that it's there. There are shackles on us we don't even know is there. And so, we're, so this kind of sermon is very difficult to wrap our heads around because we're like, wait, no, I thought that was it. I thought that was it. I can quote whole chapters of the Bible. I've got people I've taught to memorize those same things. It's good. And yet God is saying, wait, but this is the fast. This is the worship that I choose. This is... This, this is what it means to actually worship me. And he says this. He says, he, he, he walks through all of these. Bond, loose the bonds of wickedness. Undo the straps of the yoke. Let the oppressed go free. Any free time you have to worship God, he's basically saying this. If you have free time, which hopefully you do, you have free time that you set aside to focus on worshiping, to focus on your closeness to God, it should be focused on correcting all the ways in which social structures or individuals in society diminish the value of other image bearers. That's actually worship. So what is it, right? How do you do these things? What what does it look like today as an American Christian to loose the bonds of wickedness? That's, I mean, it's not easy, but that's the easy part to, to explain. Undo the straps of the yoke. When I was a kid, I always would see things like yolk, don't be unequally yoked, well, watch out for the yolk. I always thought, why do they care about eggs so much? Like, are we trying to make omelets? What's a holy omelet? I'm hungry. I, I never understood that until as I got older, you start realizing this idea of a yoke, right? This thing that would actually come along around the neck of an oxen and be attached to a load so you can carry the load. That oxen can't go anywhere if that yoke's on it that the owner won't tell it to go. You are, you are trapped. You are stuck. You are in chain. You are uh, in captivity. There's nothing else that can happen. That yoke is on you. And here it says, loosen the yoke. Now, what is, the, what is he talking about here? Clearly, there are people that are, that are in broken societal and structural systems that hold them captive. And, and what he doesn't say is, encourage people to break their own yoke. He doesn't say, 
Encourage people to find a way to, to show some a personal responsibility enough to break it. He doesn't say, make sure, we, we, we've been joking about it a lot. He doesn't say, embrace this middle-class gospel again. He actually says, it's your job to loosen the yoke. He says, loosen, eliminate the ways that people are treated like animals. And then later, he doesn't just say, just loosen the yoke. You loosen the yoke to free the ones who are there now. Then he says, break the yoke. So now, not only is it, how do I help get people out of where they are, how do I help break the systems in place so that other people don't become entangled? That, that's actually a part of the gospel. I had somebody say to me one time, listen, man, I don't understand how all these people now, some of these churches are talking about justice and stuff. That just sounds like some kind of communist liberal thing. Where in the Bible does it ever say that? <laughs> this is a person who was a part of a very well-known church for a very, very long time. And this is how they viewed this issue of making things right, justice, breaking yokes. I don't really understand all of that. I don't know where people are getting that. I think some people are changing that Bible around. Or they're just reading all of it. <laughs> Try not to be bitter. It's really hard. It's not enough to just loosen yokes. We have to actually be about breaking them. And you can't break a yoke that you have voluntarily chosen to ignore. You can't break a yoke that you've just decided not to, decided to look into your own echo chamber, just stay there. You can't do it. So, so it's great that you feel great about whatever it is that, that, that occupies your attention the most. But the question is, at some point, are you being drawn out of that to actually care about some of these broken systems? Systems matter. He says in verse 7, it's not just... Ultimately, he's showing you this. He, it's not to share your bread. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? This is a huge statement. When he says, don't hide yourself from your flesh, think about this. God says, don't see these people as the other. He, he basically is saying, fix your pronouns. Don't see them as them. See them as us. You actually treat them like your own flesh. You treat them like your own family. Now, you need to understand, in, 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 in this culture, right, if you go back to ancient Middle Eastern culture, uh, we struggle with this as Americans because we're very individually thinking, and there's certain good things about it, but there's some really hard things about it, too. During that time, everything was about family. Everything was about family. Like, there was no, you didn't just focus on your individual happiness uh, apart from your family's happiness. If your family didn't progress, you didn't progress. Yeah. It, it wasn't enough for you to be accomplished and your family wasn't. And the same thing went for, th for wrongdoing. You did something wrong, it brought shame upon your family, not just you. This, the, the idea of just thinking individually was very foreign to them. And so when, when God says, when these folks who are broken, these folks who are imperfect, these folks may even have made horrible decisions, and yet the, the, the bad decisions they've made have been taken advantage of by a very broken societal structure. You need to see them as family. If you've got someone in your family that's hungry, would you say, learn how to make a fork, goodbye? If you've got somebody that's family, hey, I know it's cold out there. I hope you can find a blanket. We, we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't do that to our children. We wouldn't do that to our parents. But God is basically saying, you need to see the them as us. You need to see them the way you see your own body. 
You need to see them as actual family. And to be honest, what, what he's really saying is this, and, and, and you, you do realize that while seeing, you know, while being connected to family is good, the danger with that was that easily, because everything was wrapped up in family and your identity was wrapped up in family and blood uh, relation and heredity, all of that, because it was so functional, that's actually why these good things turn into idols as well. And that's where uh, tribalism, nationalism, racism, that's where that becomes uh, a huge sin struggle, right? Because you're so focused on us, 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 that anybody that's not us becomes the them, 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 and now they become an adversary. So, so what God is saying is the only way, the only way for you to actually be about this real justice life is to see them as you. I don't care what race they are, what socioeconomic status they are, what, what, what their prison record is, you need to see them as you. There's countless examples of sermons, if we were to go back, because I'm going to tell you, the church, as we said before, the church in America has rarely done this well. So what we normally do is we like to handpick a, a, a few really good examples and ignore the preponderance of evidence that shows all the ways that we failed on this over and over and over again. Part of it is because we don't want to believe that there is something systemically wrong with the way we've seen the gospel, because then it causes us to do much, too, too much kind of excavating and figure, so we don't want to do that. So it's like, well, yeah, but there are a lot of examples. Here's the deal. Countless examples of sermons that I can find, I've looked at many of them, that during the 1800s advocated for slavery, if we just use that example. Tons. Like it was actually a minority opinion to actually be against slavery. Good Christians, many of them that, that we quote, right? Many of the, 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 the theologians that we would quote, we got somebody in our church that's named after one. <laughs> I'm not even going to name them. Nah. <laughs> but I mean, it's true, right? We, we know it. Like, there, there are theologians that have had great things to say, wonderful things to say about God, and yet their view was focused on just an individual gospel without any care for the other. And so they would preach things like, listen, God made them different for a reason. They were meant to be subservient, and for you to speak against that is to speak against the law of God. That's not a one-off. That, that was the majority. And then after the Civil War, then what happens? You've got lots of people who are not preaching sermons. I can find you at least 50 right now of people, of churches, going all the way back from the late 1800s all the way to the mid-1900s that would say things like, it is never God's will for you to have people just living together, to be around each other, to be uh, uh, having access to the same things together because God intended to have everybody separate. I, I, I've always been just floored when I look at, there are two sermons specifically uh, by, by uh, a guy by the name of Bob Jones and a guy by the name of Jerry Falwell. You might have heard some of those folks. And so interesting because so, so much of, of their focus in the, in the 1960s and 70s was actually on making sure that civil rights legislation didn't get through because they were convinced that that was against the plan of God. And the majority of, dare I say, evangelicals actually agreed with this and hid their hatred for that particular issue around other social moral issues that really were never the main issue. And so now, and so what ends up happening is the church has been this guilty over and over again. I don't really, no, I, I don't really see, see it that way. I don't know that I really want to see, treat the other like myself. I'd rather just them be separate but equal. 
even though it's really not equal. And then if they start protesting how unequal it is, I'm going to have a problem with that. Because again, protesting, eh, I don't like that. Makes me uncomfortable. This is what the church has done, y'all. This is actually the history of the church. Now, you go back to the, the uh, early 1800s. Adam Clark, British theologian, said this. He, he, in his commentary on Isaiah 58, this is what he says about verse 7, about the oppressed going free. He says, let the oppressed go free. How can any nation pretend to fast or worship God at all, or dare to profess that they believe in the existence of such a being while they carry on the slave trade and traffic in the souls, blood, and bodies of men and women. I love this word. O ye most flagitious, <laughs> flagitious of knaves, and worst of hypocrites, cast off at once the mask of religion and deepen not your endless perdition by professing the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ while you continue in this traffic. Now, he wasn't popular for saying this because, again, just like what we read before, people were interested in enlarging their privilege, not actually finding a way to stop that from happening. See, this is what uh, folks were always saying. Many, much like nobles, had family crests. Right? If you had a noble family in Britain, you had a family crest, or you worked for the queen or the king, you would have the crest on you. If you were a knight in the king's army or the queen's army, you had a crest to show, oh, whose house are you defending? Whose kingdom are you defending? On the block, it's like, who, what colors are you claiming? Who are you with? And so ultimately, when you would go somewhere, in order for them to know whose family you were part of, they saw your crest. Do you realize that the crest of the family of God is justice? The crest of the family of God is justice. Before anything else, this is what, how people know, oh, they're with God. Oh, they're with, they're with the, the God of this universe. They're with the God of the, the heavens and the earth because that's how they function. That's the crest. They look at these marginalized groups and they seek to, to, to completely destroy the yokes of injustice. That's what they do. My mom used to, draw, used to buy patterns from the fabric store. Um, when I was a kid, and she would make all kinds of things for people. She'd make dresses, she'd make sweaters, she'd make choir robes, she'd make blankets. One time she made, like, some kind of a Muppet for the kid, but it was really creepy. i go in the closet, it was like Kermit the Frog's head just hanging on the side. But my mom was super crafty, and she would do that. And I remember she would have these packets of, 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 of uh, thread and, and fabric. And what was, but what was so beautiful about it that, that got me was when my mom would work, it would just be fabric everywhere. And then she would get on her sewing machine. I just remember the hum of the, of the sewing machine. And then she would just be doing it for hours and hours and hours. And at the end of the day or at the end of the project, you would see everything just woven and interwoven, right? All of the thread, all of the fabric had to be interwoven per perfectly, right? All of the fabric and the thread had to be interdependent, right? It, the, the, the actual pattern wouldn't come together if you were like, hey, we're over here. You figure out how to weave yourself over there. It, it wouldn't work. I would just look like that Gordon Gartrell shirt that Theo wore on, on Cosby Show, if you remember that. <laughs> it, just, it just wouldn't work, would it? All y'all are thinking about that. I was gold with these weird, he had one long sleeve and one short sleeve, and he couldn't figure out what to do. You see, ultimately, when we talk about, when we talk about justice, right, Justice is always tied to the word peace in the Old Testament. And the word peace in the Hebrew is the word shalom. When you think about justice, if I were to ask you to de de define justice, you likely would say punishment for wrongdoing. That's largely how we've been trained to think about it, specifically in the church. Justice 
is punishment for wrongdoing. But in the Old Testament, justice, right? The, the word justice or mishpat is a word that actually says not only equal punishment, but also equal protection. That, that's actually justice. And so we over-index one. Well, when I think about justice, I just think about making sure the bad guys get punished, and that's that. And actually, it's both. Yes, people need to be punished equally. They also need to be protected and provided for equally. That's justice. Why do we do justice? To achieve shalom. To achieve everything being knit together perfectly. To achieve this world where actually the fabric of God is actually woven together in such a way where things are functioning the way they were meant to function. So here's what this means. The body works this way, right? When things aren't working, when things are working well in your body, you're experiencing bodily shalom. When, 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 you're, when, you're, when, when things are working right, that's great. When you eventually die, that's because the shalom of your body is now degradating. It's now degrading. It's now breaking down. In order to have an emotionally healthy mind, the things in your mind need to be knit together perfectly so that now you're, you, you are of sound mind. We say that all the time, Lord, give me a sound mind. Some of us, I wonder if we do. I wonder if I have it all the time. But having a sound mind is one thing. Here's what happens when, when emotions start to, to overtake us or when guilt starts to set in or when anger starts to set in. Guess what? Emotional and psychological shalom starts to degrade. Something happens, not to mention the things that can happen biochemically. Uh, That's a whole other issue. But the bottom line is that when things start to happen on the, on the brain level, now all of a sudden, shalom is actually starting to, to, to be dispersed. Shalom is actually starting to actually be degraded. There's something wrong with the peace in our minds. And when, when you look at uh, people stewarding their resources, their time, their talent, their treasures, when people say, let's make sure that we take our privilege and invest it into communities, whether it's schools or hospitals or criminal justice or, or, uh, it, or, or education, whatever it is, that's actually how you have societal shalom, communal shalom. That's actually what we're called to. So what does worship look like? How are you doing with that? Do you actually hold this as a view of worship? And that's the reason why we won't read them all. That's the reason why the last eight verses of the passage say this. Hey, listen, when you do this, it's a bunch of if-then statements. When you do this, then the Lord will answer. It's not just, well, God, I really have it all wrong, but I know you're going to answer my prayer anyway. And he's going, you were, you're here, you're put there to image me well. If you're not actually connecting your individual worship to a, to a life of worshipful justice, I'm not hearing you. Then he'll respond to your cry. Then he'll take away the yoke in your midst. Then he'll take strife and put it away. He says, then your light will rise in the darkness. When we ask, man, where's the church? Why is the church not that effective? And normally what we do is we just blame the other. It's those crazy people who don't like Jesus. It's those crazy people who are anti-church. It's those, actually it's because we, in many cases have failed to be the church. And the moment we repent of that and acknowledge that, that's when we can actually start doing the work of real reconciliation because our voice actually stops being heard. He says, then your gloom and your emotional depression will go away. My favorite is in verse 12 when he says this. He almost turns into a straight up hip hop artist. He says, you shall be the repairer of the breach and the restorer of the streets. That is the most beautiful part of this here, because ultimately you're not called to just actually be by yourself in your good, holy bubble. You're actually called to be a repairer. When there are breaches, you're called to repair them, which means start studying. 
start reading, start listening before we ever open our mouth. If somebody says that there's something broken somewhere, don't go, no, 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 you don't understand. Let me explain. We don't start with that. We start with, talk to me. Because if there's a breach, I want to repair it. And if it means that it causes me to look in, in, in the annals of my own life and see ways that I might have even been complicit in the breach, I'll deal with that. I'll take that. Ultimately, it's to God's glory that I feel that and that I'm broken by that. Worship is stewarding our privilege for God's glory, and God's glory is on display not only in what we do individually, but what we do for those who don't have privilege. That's why Proverbs 4 says, insult the poor, you insult the Lord. That's why Proverbs 19 says, you give to the poor, give it to the Lord. That's the reason why in Matthew 25, God says things like this. It's so interesting. You remember he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and will be separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And his place, he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger or an immigrant, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty or give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger. You didn't welcome me. I was naked. You didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison. You didn't visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? I, and I didn't minister to you. And then he will say to them, truly, I say to you, as you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do to me. The reason why Jesus can do this, do you see what he's saying? Ultimately, he's saying this, if you don't steward privilege for the least of these, then you are still not at peace with me. Because if there is no justice in your worship, there is no peace with me. No justice, no peace, period. This is, this is such a radical message, just the scriptures, because ultimately saying you need to tie the way that you worship, divorce it from just Sunday morning service. Yeah, yeah. Divorce it from having a great emotional reaction on a Sunday so that you can fill your cup and go on for the rest of the week. He's saying ultimately if you don't have a heart for justice, it's not me that's been filling your cup. This is the heart, this is the heart of the gospel. You don't steward privilege for the least of these. Regardless of your outward acts of worship, you don't have peace with God. The way you treat the immigrant, the poor, the imprisoned, it's indicative of your relationship with God. Justice, shalom, that's the family crest of God's people. If it never develops, you can't possibly have the peace of God the way that you think you do. We can't possibly say, sing, I am a friend of God, when we have no peace with him. And this is ultimately what we see when we see what Jesus said 
in, in, uh, in, in Colossians, and he says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You, know, you understand what he's saying there? He's saying this, ultimately, the Sabbath in the Old Testament was to be a picture of what God's people should always be like. Jesus fulfills the Sabbath. So now, you no longer need to judge people based on whether or not you meet on this day or on that day. That, that no longer needs to happen because Jesus has fulfilled that. So now, every day should be a heart that is worshipful as if it was a Sabbath day for us because every day we have Jesus. This was meant to point to Jesus. He empowers us to love like he does. He empowers us to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. It's a great privilege. And yet Jesus Christ literally identified with the least of these by becoming one of the oppressed. He literally went under the yoke. And now because of that, he says, I, the one who deserved vindication, I get condemnation. So you, human beings who've messed up this world, who deserve condemnation, you can get the justice and the pardon. I give you shalom. I gave up my shalom so that you could have shalom. Jesus Christ took a nosedive into our lives. He took a nosedive, a nosedive into the brokenness of our lives. He took the threads of his privilege at an infinite cost to himself, and he threaded himself into our life, into the fabric of, of, of what was breaking us to save us from falling in. That's what you get when you get delivered out of yourself. That's what you're about when you're delivered out of yourself. So now we, we realize that everything that he's given us, all the privilege he's given us, all the things that he's done for us, this is what motivates us to move forward. This is what motivates us to worship. Let's pray that our worship doesn't just begin and end on a Sunday. Begin and end with a song. Hopefully it begins and ends with a heart that is broken for the broken. Broken for those that are in chain. Broken for those who are being exploited. Broken for those who have horrible injustices that we have just been able to just be ignorant of. May that break our heart. May we be convicted of plastic, fake, and phony worship. Amen. Let's pray. God, we are overwhelmed with the love that you've shown for us, that you have loved us for your sake. This beauty that, that, that of this relationship you have with us that should change our heart. God, I pray that this is the beauty we'll get out of being delivered from ourselves. God, will you let this be a time that we can do some real searching, some real uh, digging and excavating of our own heart. God, if I'm honest, it's so easy for me to hide in my own privilege. It's so easy for me to hide from things that I don't have to be touched by. It's so easy for me to, 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 to ward myself off against those that would force me to actually think about things that I've not had to think about. And yet, God, you, you tell us that this is the fast that you require of us. You tell us that in order to be truly in peaceful relationship with you, to have true shalom with you, we should be seeking shalom in our community. So God, break us, convict us, mold us, Forgive us, empower us. In Jesus' name, amen. We come to the table, and as we, as we do, we're thinking about this common cup, this common table, what it is to, to actually be in community with God. 
and what it means to be in community with each other. And this common cup, this common table, we do this together because ultimately we're saying we truly believe that in order to be a part of the family of God, it's not just about being oriented right towards God alone. That's why we don't just say, everybody go home by yourself and take communion. We take communion as a family. We take communion as a body. We take communion as a family that's interwoven and interdependent. And what it means is that there should be a part of our heart that actually is, to, is moved to repentance to say, Lord, if there are ways in my life right now where I have not really interwoven myself into places that you probably are calling me, that I know you're calling me into, this is a time to repent. This is not just a time to repent from individual sin and what did I think wrong, what did I do wrong? Definitely we need that. But we also need to think, what am I, what am I missing? What have I voluntarily overlooked? What have I doubled down on that actually is not God's heart at all? And I actually need to just say, I've been wrong. This is the time. If this is really, when you think about the truth of what Jesus has done, and if you really think, man, I, it's because of the privilege of Jesus that I actually have any privilege at all, and that moves me to a place where I'm thinking, Lord, I am moved to figure out how do I steward my privilege better? How do I figure out what things should be closed-fisted issues for me and open-handed issues for me? What, what, what does this look like? This is a time where the Holy Spirit does work with us. If this is true for you, if this is where your heart really is, if this is where your joy really is, that this finished work that Jesus has done to reconcile you and then make you a reconciler, a repairer of the breach, then this, is, this table is for you. If this isn't, and you're, this is just not where you are, then he would never, God is never asking you to come and actually be plastic. He's never asking you and telling you to come and just play the role. He's actually not asking you to come and just fake the fast. He's actually saying, let the fast be true of your heart first. Then come to me because I want relationship with you. I want to use you. I don't want to use the mask. I don't want to use the costume. I don't want to use the fake feelings. I don't want to use the fake tears. I don't want to use phony emotions. I want to use you broken. I will heal you. I will mend you, but I want you. As the volunteers come, we want to remind you that we do communion by the process of intention. And so as you walk down these middle aisles, you'll come down and you'll take a piece of gluten-free bread and you'll move uh, to, your, to your right as you get uh, either wine or juice and you'll dip the bread in. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gave thanks for the Passover meal and he said, this is my body. It's given for you. Take and eat of it. And in the exact same manner, he said, this is, he took the cup and he said, this cup, this is my blood. This is the blood that's poured out for the remission of sins. This is the blood. This is the blood that interweaves us. This is the blood that makes us interdependent, not independent, not codependent, but interdependent. This shows that our greatest reliance is on him. He says, take. The Apostle Paul reminds us that as often as we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What are we proclaiming? We are proclaiming that ultimately we can't do this perfectly. We are going to mess up. We are going to fall. We're going to be broken. We're going to have to apologize. We're going to have to repent. We don't think that we are, are triumphalists and we think everything is going to be perfect on this side of heaven. But what we do say is, as often as we are broken, we don't ever falter because we know he's coming to make it perfect. The fabric will be perfectly formed. This is our greatest joy. That is your joy. 
If that is your hope, then come, taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's eat together.